when the president does it, that means that it is not illegal. From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, elsewhere in California on KFOI in Red Bluff, Redding, KKRN Round Mountain, KGOE Eureka, in Oregon on KYAQ on the Central Coast, KSO in Cottage Grove, KETW Eugene. Lancaster, Pennsylvania, we're on WLRI. In Maui, Hawaii, KAKU. Columbus, Ohio, WGRN. Palinville, New York, WLPP. Grand Rapids, Michigan, WPRR. New Orleans, Louisiana, WHIV. Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ. Seattle, Washington, KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR. Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950, KTNF, and coast to coast and around the globe. Streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing the globe five days a week, usually hosted by Brad Friedman of Bradblog.com. But today, once again, you've got me. I'm Nicole Sandler. I host the Nicole Sandler Show at NicoleSandler.com. And I'm here filling in for Brad and Desi until they can get back. In case you don't know the reasons behind their extended absence, well, Brad wrote a long post that is now pinned at the top at Bradblog.com. I hope you'll go over and read it for yourself because Brad wrote some really powerful, strong, and beautiful words. It's a eulogy for his father who passed away last week. They should be back hopefully in the next week or so. But as I told Brad and Desi, deal with your family. Do what you have to do. The broadcast will be here when you get back. So that's why I'm still here. And thank you for being here as well. What a time for them to be gone, too, because everything is exploding. Talk about breaking news. It's by the moment, it seems. So In this segment, I'll do my best to bring you up to date on where we are, what has happened since we last got together, what, 24 hours ago? We'll begin with some of the latest news. (laughs) That is just stunning. That's the only way I can describe it. It is stunning. As if last week wasn't one for the record books, buckle in, because there's a whole lot of breaking going on. Breaking news, that is. We begin with the Wall Street Journal reporting Monday that Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was on that July 25th phone call between Donald Trump and the president of Ukraine when Trump asked Ukrainian President Zelensky to do him a favor and look into one of his political rivals, Joe Biden. Despite Pompeo's evasive answers, he's gone on the record denying any knowledge about the call. We now know that Pompeo was actually listening in. And to make matters worse for the Secretary of State, just last week, on Sunday, September 22nd, on ABC's This Week, Mike Pompeo, first in his class at West Point, graduate of Harvard Law School, well, he played dumb. The Wall Street Journal is reporting that President Trump pressed the president of Ukraine eight times to work with Rudy Giuliani to investigate Joe Biden's son. What do you know about those conversations? So you just gave me a report about a high-seek whistleblower campaign, none of which I've seen. Are you confident that none of your staff, that you or none of your staff did anything improper in this whole uh, situation? To the best of my knowledge, and from what I've seen so far, uh, each of the actions that were undertaken by State Department officials was entirely appropriate. Dumb, not so much. Lying, obviously. But Pompeo's not the only one in the president's inner circle caught up in this web of lies. Enter Donald Trump's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani. On Monday, the House Intelligence, Oversight, and Foreign Affairs Committees subpoenaed Giuliani for documents, including text messages, phone records, other communications, all to be turned over by October 15th. 
Rudy, of course, went on Fox to beat his chest, claiming he hasn't decided yet whether or not he'll cooperate. He did add, though, that the only way he'd testify was with Trump's approval. But if it's a day ending in Y, you know there's more. And this time, it's U.S. Attorney General William Barr implicated as being waist-deep in the muck. The New York Times this time reporting that Donald Trump pushed the Australian prime minister during another recent phone call to help Attorney General Bill Barr gather information on the origins of the Mueller investigation. Seriously. Remember this? I hope they now go and take a look at the oranges, the oranges of the uh, uh, investigation, the beginnings of that investigation about the Mueller report. The Mueller report, I wish, covered the oranges, how it started, the beginnings of the investigation, how it started. Oh, yeah. The oranges of the Mueller investigation. And Australia? Well, think back. In December of 2017, the New York Times reported exactly where it all began. And yes, Australia was involved. Here's the report. Quote, during a night of heavy drinking at an upscale London bar in May 2016, George Papadopoulos, a young foreign policy advisor to the Trump campaign, made a startling revelation to Australia's top diplomat in Britain. Russia had political dirt on Hillary Clinton. About three weeks earlier, Papadopoulos had been told that Moscow had thousands of emails that would embarrass Mrs. Clinton, apparently stolen in an effort to try to damage her campaign. Exactly how much Papadopoulos said that night at the Kensington Wine Rooms with the Australian Alexander Downer is unclear. But two months later, when leaked Democratic emails began appearing online, Australian officials passed the information about Papadopoulos to their American counterparts. This according to four current and former American and foreign officials with direct knowledge of the Australian's role. Now, back to today. NBC News has also confirmed the story, although a Justice Department official called Trump's request an ask. Semantics much? The New York Times wrote, quote, The White House curbed access to a transcript of the call, which the president made at Mr. Barr's request, to a small group of aides. FBI counterintelligence investigators began examining any Trump ties to Russia's 2016 election interference after Australian officials told the Bureau that Russian intermediaries had made overtures to Trump advisors about releasing politically damaging information about Hillary Clinton. Got that? Yeah. As with Trump's call with the president of Ukraine, his discussion with Australia's Prime Minister Scott Morrison shows the president using high-level diplomacy to advance his personal political interests. What more do you need to know? But wait, there's more. It's not only Australia. The Washington Post also reported Monday that Attorney General Bill Barr has been holding meetings overseas with lots of foreign officials, including British intelligence officials and Italian government officials, asking them to help in Trump's efforts to investigate the Russia investigation. I couldn't make this stuff up if I tried. Now, the committees working hard on the impeachment inquiry, uh, they're still there, mostly the Intelligence Committee staying through the recess. And there were a number of impeachment inquiry happenings this week. For instance, scheduled for Wednesday, October 2nd, the deposition of Marie Yovanovitch. She's the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, who Trump very famously fired, followed on Thursday by the deposition of Kurt Volker, He's the former State Department special envoy for Ukraine who resigned on Monday. Then on Friday, the intelligence community's inspector general, Michael Atkinson, is scheduled to testify behind closed doors. Friday is also the deadline for Mike Pompeo to turn over all the documents he's been subpoenaed for. However, on Tuesday, Mike Pompeo said, not so fast. In a fiery letter to the Democratic chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Secretary of State Pompeo described lawmakers' demand for depositions by five officials who played a role in U.S. relations with Ukraine as, quote, an attempt to intimidate, bully, and treat improperly the distinguished professionals of the Department of State. Huh? 
And further, he said those officials would not be made available until, quote, we obtain further clarity on these matters. Wow. Look, we've talked about this before. Perhaps it is time for the House of Representatives to clean out the space in the basement of the Capitol building that was once a jail cell and should be used in that role again and get the sergeant at arms on the ready to start arresting these people who refuse to comply with congressional subpoenas. Seriously, this is beyond ridiculous already. In other news... A peek at the situation across the pond reveals things are almost as bad for Prime Minister Boris Johnson in the U.K. as they are for Donald Trump here. Boris Johnson's attempt at pushing through his Brexit strategy has hit roadblocks. Now he's embroiled in a scandal over his alleged links to a U.S. businesswoman from when he was mayor of London. The businesswoman is a tech entrepreneur named Jennifer Arcuri. She allegedly received thousands of pounds in public funding when Johnson was mayor. So Johnson could be subjected to an official investigation. He says he's done nothing wrong. Sounds familiar. He's also dealing with allegations, which he denies, that he groped a female journalist during a lunch two decades ago. Here we go. Closer to home, New York Congressman Chris Collins is now former Congressman Chris Collins. He submitted his resignation from Congress on Monday, one day ahead of his expected guilty plea on federal charges in an insider trading case. Lovely. And finally, Beijing is marking 70 years of communist rule in China with a massive parade and a show of force and unity. Of course, protesters and police are mixing it up on the streets of Hong Kong. One person was shot in the chest by police. But on Tuesday morning, Donald Trump, the president of the United States of America, actually sent a tweet congratulating him, quote, Congratulations to President Xi and the Chinese people on the 70th anniversary of the People's Republic of China. The idiot-in-chief actually congratulated China on 70 years of communist rule. I'll just let that sit here for a moment. Oh, and one last thing. In his regular gaslighting Twitter rounds, Donald Trump likes to accuse social media companies of targeting so-called conservative voices. That's nonsense. Take this for example. On Sunday, Trump wrote a Twitter thread where he stitched together quotes from Fox News's Pastor Robert Jeffress, who said that if Trump was impeached and removed from office, there would be a civil war. That thread was then quote tweeted by the Twitter account belonging to the Oath Keepers, which added, quote, this whole thread is important to read. The term civil war is increasingly on people's tongue. And it's not just, quote, cold civil war, full-blown hot civil war. If you're wondering about who the Oath Keepers are, well, the Southern Poverty Law Center describes them as one of the largest radical anti-government groups in the U.S. today. By the way, that tweet is still up. Twitter told BuzzFeed News it would not provide a comment on whether tweets that call for civil war violate its terms of service. But BuzzFeed News did confirm that the platform did not intend to remove the tweet. You gotta be kidding me. All right, we got a busy show for you today. Two great interviews coming up. First, we're going to speak with Dee Dee Guttenplan. He's the editor of The Nation, and he's got a very thoughtful article posted there now that deals with one of my biggest pet peeves. It's worse than a peeve. It's an issue. We'll talk with The Nation's D.D. Gutten Plan next. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. Hey, this is Brad. My thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help Desi Doyen and I stay on your public airwaves. You're the only one that keeps us here. Thank you. Welcome back to the broadcast. I'm Nicole Sandler, host of The Nicole Sandler Show, filling in for Brad and Desi while they're taking time to be with their family and grieve at this difficult time. If you haven't yet seen Brad's eulogy for his father, I invite you to go to bradblog.com where his explanation of his absence is posted along with the wonderfully moving, funny, and heartbreaking eulogy he delivered at his father's funeral 
on Sunday. Brad and Desi will be back soon. In the meantime, I'm here holding down the fort. And thank you for bearing with me. My show is a little different from Brad's. Brad is a journalist. He does original reporting. I don't. I'm a talk show host. My shows are based on fact. And if I ever get anything wrong, please correct me because the one thing I don't want to do is disseminate false information. And I form my opinions based on fact. So if some of the underlying facts I'm getting wrong, I obviously need to know that. I'd rather admit a mistake than keep perpetuating one. So with that said, I know Brad doesn't often get into the minutiae of partisan politics. But I'm a partisan. I'm a Democrat only because I have to be to vote in the Democratic primaries. I believe in the primary process because that's when we get to pick the best possible candidate. That's when you reach for the stars. You go for what is possible. And this time out, I think we're very lucky. I think we have two great progressive candidates who I feel we'd be well served by either one of them getting the nomination. Of course, I'm talking about Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. I spend a lot of time on Twitter. I'm at Nicole Sandler. Yeah, I've got a lot of followers, and I do get into it with people. And lately, not too long ago, I had to pin a tweet to the top of my Twitter page that says, just a heads up, if you come on my timeline to attack Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, I will block you. Ask pertinent questions about issues, but ad hominem BS statements will get you blocked. I'm sick of this expletive. That's how I talk. Anyway, uh, I've had to block quite a few people because of those infractions, which is why I was really glad to see a new piece up at The Nation, thenation.com, by D.D. Guttenplan. D.D. Don is the editor of The Nation. His newest article is titled, We don't have to choose between Warren and Sanders yet. Of course, I have to talk to him. All right. On the line with us is D.D. Guttenplan. He's the editor of The Nation, author of The Next Republic, The Rise of a New Radical Majority, and his new article, We Don't Have to Choose Between Warren and Sanders Yet, will appear on the October 14th edition of The Nation magazine, but it's online now at thenation.com. And Don, I love that you wrote this. First of all, let me thank you for saying this. Because we don't have to choose between Warren and Sanders yet, but I love that you present us with what I believe is the only choice to be made in the presidential primary race. And what choice is that? I'm curious. Uh, Between Sanders... First of all, I should say thanks for having me on. Oh, sure. thank you for your kind words. Um, Well, between Sanders and Warren, if indeed we need to make a a choice. Um, Well, clearly at at some point, people who live in in primary states will have to make a choice. You can only cast one vote, but... Mm -hmm. What I was pushing back against was a couple of things. Partly it was the, uh, the sort of what I thought of as premature warfare breaking out after the Working Families Party here in New York endorsed Elizabeth Warren recently. Mm-hmm. Um, and also I was trying to reinforce something that I'd seen and that we at the nation had written about covering the debates, which is what an incredibly effective team uh, Bernie and Warren made in, during the debates yep. and the way in which they seem to have each other's backs. And what a great thing that was for those of us on the left who've been basically arguing. I mean, this is the case I make in my book, but it's also something that we, we write about quite a lot at the nation, which is that if you ask people questions beyond party identification about things like whether they would like to have guaranteed health insurance or whether they think people should have to go into backbreaking debt to go to college, it turns out that a majority of Americans favor what the mainstream media describe as radical solutions. Mm-hmm. And what's happened because of the efforts of both Sanders and Warren is that those ideas have now become the center of the Democratic primary debate. And I think that's a huge achievement which we should be celebrating and cherishing and protecting. Exactly. I couldn't agree with you more. Look, I sit here. I, I you know, I host a talk show. I, I don't consider myself a journalist. I don't do original reporting. I, I rely heavily on the great journalistic work of people who do. Um, so I, so I'm, I'm open about my opinions. I always say my opinions are based in fact, but I am a, 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 
a, a follower, a supporter of both Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, and I think we'd be well served with either one of them as the nominee. I've got both bumper stickers on my car. I even have my Elizabeth Warren <laughs> and Bernie Sanders action figures sitting here on my desk right next now, to me as I do the show. Do you have both bumper stickers on your left bumper, or do you have one on your left you bumper and one on your center left bumper? Funny you should ask. They both happen to be on the left. <laughs> figures, right? Um, that said, uh, it's interesting because I, I noted the words you chose in this piece at The Nation. Uh, you called it a truce. Um, and, you know, I've tried to find out with, with no luck whatsoever if there's any kind of official agreement between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, who, who have known each other for years and, as they both say, have been friends for years, or if they're just um, not willing to go the route that some of their supporters have, which is my biggest beef of the day. We'll get to that in a second. Do you think well, there's think, anything? I know I, it's an unwritten I, thing. I don't know whether there's an explicit truce, and I, I certainly, uh, I mean, we have great reporters here at The Nation, and I, I covered the 2016 campaign for The Nation myself. Mm-hmm. But even then, I don't think that either of them would have told me. Right, <laughs> and I exactly. They're, they're talking about it. But on the other hand, we know that they meet and they talk to each other quite a bit. We know that before she declared her, her candidacy, uh, Warren made a point of seeking out Bernie and having long meetings with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I assume in part so that her candidacy didn't didn't catch him by surprise. But I suspect also they discussed some ground rules because they've certainly been acting very supportive towards each other uh, as candidates. Now, you know, one of the things I say in the piece is that only one of them is going to win New Hampshire, and it happens to be the neighboring state for both of them. That's right. So I, I expect that by the time we get to New Hampshire, there'll be more of a need to choose which of them, which of them you favor, although... Like you, I'd be very happy to see either of them nominated, and I'd be thrilled to see either of them president. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's true for an awful lot of nation readers and an awful lot of progressives generally. I, I, mean, I think so, too. But I think I think people who believe as we do are the, um, I don't want to call us silent, silent the quieter, <laughs> the quieter majority. Because there's a very loud, very vocal, very social media savvy um, what I believe minority who are loud and who are ugly. I got to tell. I finally had to pin a tweet to the top of my Twitter page, basically saying, "If you come in my Twitter stream to attack either Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, I will block you." And I've blocked many people. Um, this is what I don't get. It's the old. My mother used to warn me about cutting off your nose to spite your face. We have two really good progressive candidates who have been who are saying the things that we've been longing to hear for so long from a, a, a realistic presidential candidate and yet they're they're going after each other with knives out and I see it from both both sides um, just last week one of Bernie Sanders main you know frontline people who, who has the screen name of uh, wayward Winifred, on, on, on Twitter, tweeted, right. quote, Bernie and Elizabeth are forcing the ruling class to pay attention to income inequality and systemic poverty. This is extremely good. And it's also why we should be good to each other online and in real life as we all campaign to win the nomination. Oh, my well, God. That's, that's because Wayward Winifred, whose na- real world name is Winnie Wong, right. who is a Kanders, Sanders campaign yep. advisor, mm-hmm. is a wise woman. Yes, she is. And a, and a realist. But if you look uh, at the responses... You know, and I think all of us who are realists have to face the fact that we have a much more important common enemy in, in Donald Trump. And we also have a dangerous situation in the Democratic Party because, I mean, this is... You know, I, I'm I'm a journalist, but I have opinions, and that's mm-hmm. one of the great things about the nation <laughs> yes. is you can write for the nation and Definitely. have opinions, right. and you don't have to park them. Yep. Um, and as I look at Biden at the top of the polls, I see an incredibly weak candidate, mm-hmm. um, someone who, on for example, the the issue of corruption and family enrichment. Now there may be nothing there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not saying that there is anything there. I'm saying that there's. There's been enough smoke generated to neutralize that as an issue against Donald Trump if Biden is the nominee. Um, you know, on on uh, the question of his his relationships uh, or his handiness with women. Yeah. Again, that's a that's an issue against Trump that would be neutralized if right. Biden is the nominee. That's right. So 
I feel like, you know, those of us who want to not just see progressive change, which may or may not be a majority in the Democratic Party, we'll, we'll find out during the primary season, although it is worth noting that uh, Sanders and Warren's supporters together, uh, you know, are far ahead of yes. the centrist candidates. Right. Well, that, um, it, but and, it's certainly true that we, want, we all want a candidate who will be able to defeat Donald Trump in November. And so it's, you know, I just think it's, it's important to refrain from fighting battles that we don't have to fight. Exactly. Well, which is why, I mean, the response to Winnie's original tweet was so ugly. And so you would have thought she was telling people that their, their mother should perform multiple sex acts in hell, that the response was so vitriolic, so disgusting. And in fact, when I, you know, after I read your piece, uh, Don, at the, at the Nation, it's posted at thenation.com. I will post links to it uh, from bradblog.com today. The comments are almost as bad. Well, you know, first of all, look, Don't read we the have comments. to distinguish between the real world and Twitter. Yes. Um, you know, because uh, if if Twitter is the real world, then we're, we're in stuck trouble. with Donald Trump forever. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so, so that's an important distinction to make. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen some of the comments. I've seen some of the comments on my piece, and some of them I just wonder. You know, I mean, they they have Twitter handles that identify them as Sanders supporters, uh-huh. but they don't they don't tweet like actual human beings. Right. So you know, I'm thinking, well. Are, are these these famous Russian bots again, or are these just some other kind of bots, mm-hmm. or are these just really stupid people? Because it seems to me that those are the three options. Right, it's probably all tweets. three. Right. There's no, there's no obvious human intelligence at work. So um, Now, look, I can see that there are people who are very committed to either candidate. You know, I, I have friends who are very committed to either candidate mm-hmm. on both sides me of this. Too. You know, I, yep. have, I have friends who have said to me, Look, Elizabeth Warren says she's a capitalist to the bone. We need to have a much more radical transformation than is ever going to be possible under under capitalism. We need to have Bernie Sanders as president because he's the only person who's arguing for that. And, you know, that's the view. Uh, I've had people who say the differences between Sanders and Warren are incredibly small, and Warren offers us the chance to have a woman president, and Bernie should drop out of the race. Mm. And, you know, that's a view. Neither of them happen to be my view, but right. I don't think they're illegitimate views, and I think some people are very passionate about it, and I think that's fine. Uh, I think that it's fine for the supporters to argue with each other, even to argue with each other with passion and heat. I just think it's crazy for the supporters to go to war with each yes. other, and I also think it's really important that the candidates themselves don't step into that before they have to, if they have to, which I'm not convinced they will have to. I mean, look, one thing we should say right, right at the start is that it's only ageism, which is the, you know, the prejudice that you're allowed to have these days, yeah. uh, that, keeps, that, that forbids us from talking about a Sanders-Warren or a Warren-Sanders uh, But I'm not, I, I, I think that's a, a legitimate way to go. In fact, I was going to ask, since everything else about the situation in which we find ourselves is unprecedented, do you think Sanders and Warren could join forces to do this together? I, I think that's, I mean, you combine their polling numbers and they leave everyone else in the dust. Um, I, I think they'd be a formidable uh, ticket. Well, I think they'd be a formidable ticket, but I think, you know, that, that there are other aspects of ticket building that probably wouldn't be pr- particularly well addressed by a Sanders Warren ticket. Yeah, I mean, their supporters, you know, Bernie has spend a lot of time and energy in, in uh, trying to attract a more diverse, uh, racially diverse group of supporters than he had last time. And of course, even last time, he had quite a lot of, of African-American support among younger voters. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I think, and that's something that, that Warren still has to work on. Yep. Um, and I think, you know, there are other candidates, potential candidates on the ticket who might, who might add more. Uh, than than either of them would add to each other, but but I also think you know that it really is only ageism that keeps us from talking about it. Yeah. I mean, right. whether it's realistic or whether it's likely is another question, but we ought to be talking about it. I, I agree, and which is why I brought it up because I think it's a it's a great idea. I, I just I wish there were a way, and and I I, I sent a 
you know, a note to one of uh, Bernie's campaign people, please have Bernie reiterate what he said at the beginning of the campaign, which is um, to to be civil to one another. To, because I saw such ugliness online uh, and ostensibly from Warren people and working in both directions. And um, but, uh, but then well, I the see what happens. You're making a really interesting point and yeah. an important point, mm-hmm. which is that. There is ugliness in both directions, yep. and what what I've seen is ugliness in both directions, but I've also seen the mainstream, and particularly the centrist media, try and paint this <laughs> as only ugliness from the Sanders yes. side, and I think that's just not the case. Well, the I corporate that's, media... That's not an honest portrayal of what's been going on. Uh, uh, honest por- portrayal and mainstream media are two words that really don't go together in this day and age. The blatant blackballing of Bernie Sanders and their the blatant way they diss him in their coverage, and I'm specifically singling out MSNBC and CNN here, is just it's so it blatant is the only word I can use. I I've screenshot after screenshot where Bernie Sanders is just left out or he's put in the wrong order, um, and and some of the remarks from many of their contributors and analysts are just horrific, and they let them go by unchallenged. I think that's irresponsible, um, to put it very lightly. It's, it's irresponsible. It shouldn't be surprising to the rest of us. But And, and, it, and also what it does is it, it cultivates or it, in, it encourages people to drift into a kind of self-righteous, you know, we're-at-war mindset. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I can see that. I can even have some sympathy with it. I mean, I, I was reading the papers this morning, and, you know, it turns out that uh, that Sanders had a fabulous quarter in terms of fundraising. Yeah, twenty-five million, uh, and and over a million donors. But yeah. uh, but the stories were not couched like that. They didn't say, you know, Sanders has incredible quarter, leads the field. They said, you know. Somewhat surprisingly, <laughs> it's like you know, it's no. like if if you are an advocate for ideas that are popular and that speak to people, then yes, you might do well in fundraising. And that seems to come as a shock to certain media commentators. Right. But um, but I I, I think that can lead to a kind of feeling of embattledness. But, you know, people have to realize that that Warren supporters, if you are a Sanders supporter, are not the enemy. Right. And and the same goes the other way. Now, there is another phrase. You said you paid attention to the language in my piece, which I'm really pleased by. Uh, there's a phrase that isn't mine that comes from Sigmund Freud, uh, which is the narcissism of small differences. Uh-huh. And I, I think, you know, that that explains a lot of the sort of vitriol on left Twitter. Yep. Um, because left Twitter is essentially all about the narcissism of small differences. Yeah, I'm so glad you, you mentioned that because it's actually another line that I had excerpted to ask you about. It was in the context of this. You wrote, this absence of infighting on the left, or at least between these two left candidates, since elsewhere on the left, the narcissism of small differences rages unabated, has long troubled the centrist press. And my comment was, I'm glad you acknowledge that there is friction between some Sanders and Warren supporters. I'm sure it's a minority, but they are a very loud, vocal online presence, and they can get really, really ugly. Well, yes. I mean, this week in the nation, we also had a piece by uh, Rukia Lumumba and Makani Temba, uh, who were two of the signatories of the letter uh, by 100 black leaders who were protesting the racial abuse that the that the leaders of the Working Families Party found themselves subjected uh-huh. to after they endorsed Warren. Right now, um, you know, I think there's no place for that in progressive politics, and I I think it was absolutely right for people. And the the, the interesting thing about the article that uh, Makani and Rukia wrote for us is that it, neither of them take a position on which candidate to support because it's irrelevant. Yep. Uh, what's relevant is that there's no place for racial abuse in progressive politics, and you know they they and they feel it's it's important for all of us to call it out as soon as we see it, and I think that's true. Absolutely. One thing that I would like, and I have no access to Elizabeth Warren. I've never been able to interview her. I've interviewed Bernie dozens of times over the years, um, uh, but the last time was shortly after he announced his candidacy. This time out, it's harder as a small independent you know, podcaster uh, to, to get through these people. So at The Nation, when you guys have uh, the next opportunity to speak with both of them, um, there are things they could do to clarify their positions. Elizabeth Warren could clarify where she stands on Medicare for All. Uh, actually, on single payer, yes or no. She's for Medicare for All, but does that include single payer? She could also explain her policy regarding 
taking corporate money and PAC contributions during the general election, something she won't do during the primary, but I'd like her to explain the difference. And by the same token, um, you know, there are, there are Bernie Sanders policy things. I think he's been clearer on many of them, but uh, I would like him to call out those radicals among his followers who are perpetrating the ugliness and tell them to cut it out. Well, I, I'm going to take issue with you there okay. a little bit because, first of all, I, I don't ever want to be using radical as a pejorative. Gotcha. No, I agree with you on that. I, <laughs> I do. That was the wrong word. job here yep. on the left. You're right. Uh, so and forget I, I radical. Say rude and ugly. His unhinged supporters, yes. some Good. of them. Yep. Um, and I think, I think he's spoken up consistently for civility. I also think that uh, that Elizabeth Warren has been pretty forthright on supporting Medicare for all, and I think you know we should be grateful for that. I am, and I think Bernie is grateful for that. Mm-hmm. And I think both of them could actually do a better job of uh, either explaining why they think that private insurance should be illegal or should be eliminated, or or why they think that uh, have letting people opt-in is, is not going to work, because mm-hmm. I don't think either of them have, been, have given a particularly compelling explanation about that. Right. Uh, and I think it's, it's a political liability. And also, I have to say, as somebody who lived for 25 years in England and was covered by the National Health Service, mm. um, there's lots of private insurance that people can buy if they want to in England. I mean, most people don't, and it tends to be only wealthy people who buy it. But it, it means that people aren't afraid of having something taken from them. And some of the people who are afraid of having something taken from them in the U.S. in this, discuss, in this context are unionized workers who traded away, you know, years of raises for what Obamacare uh, branded as Cadillac health care plans. Right, right. Um, which, if you're a unionized worker, you just think of as an adequate health care plan. And you're wondering, you know, A, why I should be taxed double for it. And now you're wondering, why does Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren want to take it away from me? And well, I think both of them, in fact, have to do a better job of explaining that. So yes, and maybe what they... that I would like clarity for, I'm sure. Sure, and maybe what they need to say is, well, just look at what happened with the striking General Motors workers, who the minute they went out on strike, General Motors killed their health insurance. Now, they since had to reinstate it, I think, because of the the backlash. But basically, in it doesn't matter if you're a union member or not, your employer can take away your health care at will, and therein lies the problem. Right. So. Well, you know, that, that would be an explanation, but they haven't made that <laughs> They haven't said that. You're right. And I, and I think they should. I, I hope people do read your piece. Again, we'll link to it from uh, today from thebradblog.com. It's posted at thenation.com. It's called We Don't Have to Choose Between Warren and Sanders Yet by D.D. Guttenplan, editor of The Nation. Thank you so much, Don. It was great to talk. This is the first time we've spoken. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for having me on. D.D. Guttenplan. You can find him on Twitter at the same handle, D.D. Guttenplan, and of course, at The Nation Magazine and TheNation.com. As much as I would love to see a Warren or Sanders presidency, I'm not so enthusiastic about a Mike Pence presidency, which if Donald Trump is removed from office and Mike Pence isn't, that's what we'll have for at least a little while. So it's a good time to learn a little bit about the vice president of the United States. Good timing. There's a new book out by a journalist named Tom Lobianco. It's called Piety and Power, Mike Pence, and the Taking of the White House. We'll speak with Tom Lobianco next. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host on today's edition of The Bradcast. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Won't you be my number two? Me and number one We're back. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host for today's edition of the Bradcast. And yes, we're in the middle of this impeachment inquiry. And let's face it, things aren't looking so good for Donald Trump. They're not looking so great for Mike Pompeo, for Bill Barr, and even Vice President Mike Pence seems to be knee deep in this stuff. But the impeachment inquiry in progress is for Donald Trump. And if Donald Trump is removed from office, Mike Pence, the vice president, becomes president. 
So it's a good time to get to know Mike Pence a little better. To that end, there's a brand new book out from veteran reporter Tom Lobianco. It's called Piety and Power, Mike Pence and the Taking of the White House. Let's get our guest on the line. Shall we? I'm calling Tom Lobianco now. He's a seasoned political reporter, political analyst on television and radio. He worked for CNN for years. He worked for the Associated Press. And he's covered Mike Pence for years. Can you imagine Mike Pence being the subject of your uh, life's work? And this is his one and only first book uh, called Piety and Power, Mike Pence and the Taking of the White House. Hey, Tom, it's Nicole Sandler calling. How are you doing today? Hey, Nicole. Hi, thank Good. you. How are you doing? I'm, I'm okay. It's it's kind of um, uh, just crazy times right now. But I guess yeah. I should say congratulations on your book and timing, they say, is everything. <laughs> thank you. Right? What a time to have a book out about Mike Pence. <laughs> that was uh, entirely unintentional, and, and thank you. <laughs> right. So, according to your bio and what I've read, you've covered Mike Pence longer and more in depth than probably any other reporter. And I guess I I say sorry. I, you know, I come I come at this as a progressive radio host. And let me tell you how I first was introduced sure. to Mike Pence. I knew he was in Congress, and I knew he came from a talk radio background. But it was about ten years oh, ago. Yeah. It was about 10 years ago. I was at a talk radio convention in Los Angeles, and Mike Pence spoke. And I remember hearing him and thinking as his speech went on progressively throughout the the 20 minutes or so that he spoke, how horrible a person he appeared to be, how frightening he was to me as a progressive and as someone who believes in, you know, free speech, everything about, I couldn't tell you what he said specifically. I can just tell you that it was really alarming. And I walked out of there going, that guy's dangerous. We need to keep an eye out on him. Wow. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, right. I mean, look, if it's I mean, if you're if you're liberal, you're not going to like Mike Pence. No, <laughs> that's right. Like, if you're conservative, you probably love him. Um, I, I, yeah, that's you know that's really fascinating. Actually, I've been talking with um, Tom Hartman earlier today, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and he told me a similar story. He said he did a um, did like a like a Talkers uh, magazine or something like right. that. Right, Talkers uh, magazine. Thing, six Does years conventions, ago. right? Yeah, and and Pence like nailed him on stage with something about the fairness doctrine, like just. And the interesting thing is, you know, the funny thing is Pence doesn't like he his popular stories. He talks about how he doesn't go negative. And that's, that's kind of true <laughs> with the personal attacks. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. That's so not true. That's just not true. Uh, again, based on limited exposure. But uh, uh, that's not been my experience and obviously not Tom Hartman's either. You know, and yeah, this is what gets what me yeah, about right. the hypocrisy of people who claim to be of God. Um, he is a, from everything I've seen about the man, he's a horrible human being. And yet he wears his Christianity, such as it is, on his sleeve. It's, it's the hypocrisy that gets me about people like him. So based on your reporting, Tom LoBianco, and, and the new book, how do you pronounce mm-hmm. Piety or piety? Oh, I go with piety, although I've heard piety as well. You're talking to a, an atheist Jew here, so I, you know, religion is the furthest from my, <laughs> out of out of my, you know, my bailiwick. So I, I don't even know how to pronounce that word. I know what it means, I think, but um, yeah. So let me ask you: as a result of of the, the news we're seeing, the news cycle this week, and your knowledge right. of Mike Pence, right. do you think he's complicit in Trump's many impeachable offenses? Well, if you look back to the Trump Russia stuff. Uh, he was really uh, careful and didn't seem to be terribly exposed in all the, the many facets of that investigation. And that was one uh, wild and, and uh, expansive investigation. So there's, you know, a lot of Trump people got swept up in that. Um, but Pence was very careful. It was actually to me when I was when I was covering that it was very remarkable how little Pence's fingerprints showed up on things. Um, what's interesting about Ukraine and this the the, the Ukraine Trump Biden uh, thing going on right mm-hmm. now is that Pence is, appears to be right in the center of it, yeah. In, in a way that he never was with Russia. So remember, he he has a meeting with um, with the the Ukraine pre- President Zelensky uh, back at the the beginning of September, and um, and afterwards uh, some of the reporters uh, get a chance to ask him questions, and they 
two questions go to him, all right? Number one, did you discuss Joe Biden? And Pence says, no, they did not talk about Biden. Right. Okay. Uh, two, did, what did you talk about? Well, we talked about uh, foreign, we talked about corruption inside the government. That's what we talked about. So that to me, and we've, I mean, you know, ever since Monday, Tuesday, when this thing really blew wide open, uh, people have been wondering, oh, well, maybe they did talk about Biden, but he didn't mm-hmm. really talk, say the name, right? So, um, I mean, certainly that's the, those are the orders that if you look at that transcript of, of, of Trump's call with Zelensky, right. those were the orders that he gave to, to Barr and to, um, Giuliani. Uh, to Giuliani. Right. Yeah. And so, Barr and Giuliani, I mean, really... Barr and Giuliani were mentioned throughout the call. Pence wasn't. Um, he wasn't mentioned in the, in the, not a transcript, in the summary of the phone call, but he does come up Good in the point. whistleblower's complaint. He, he comes up just once. Uh, according to the whistleblower, Trump instructed Pence to cancel his trip <clears throat> where he was supposed to go to represent the U.S. at Zelensky's inauguration in May. Instead, they sent Energy Secretary Rick Perry. The whistleblower added that mm. at the same time, White House officials said it was made clear to them that Trump did not want to meet with Zelensky until he saw how the Ukrainian leader, quote, chose to act in office. Um, but, but this was uh, uh, something where they pulled Mike Pence back and said, no, you're not going. Mm. Yeah, that's right. That's interesting. Well, here's the thing, right? Pence's job inside the White one of his one of his jobs inside the White House is, is carrying the message. And that's that's kind of what he's been doing for his well, most of his political career, right? Since he gets elected to Congress and you know, through the governorship and then now. So w- when he has that meeting in September with Zelensky, he's carrying the message. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, you know, the, the question now is, okay, did he know that this is what appears to be a, a blackmail message? Did he have any um, uh, you know any idea? Of, of what Trump really meant with all this. Uh-huh. Um, it, it's hard to tell. Let me let me get into the Trump-Pence relationship here for a second, because okay. I think this really goes to the heart of what may or may not have happened with, with, with Pence here. Uh, he doesn't really have a super close relationship with Trump. It's not, it's kind of warm, but aloof. Right. And, uh, and I, I think that, you know, this is, wor- it works both ways. When things are going good, they get legislation passed. You know, there's the plaudits and whatnot. Um, Pence's team will go, will will swoop in for the victory, and they'll talk about how you know how close they work with everyone and how influential they are right. and all that. Yeah. Um, but when things get hot, like with Russia, and then here with Ukraine, uh, you see them start to wall themselves off, and oh, we're not, you know, not really involved with all that. Mm-hmm. I noticed in my reporting that. Pence is not, he is not the Svengali. He's not the shadow president. So let's, let's put that one to bed. Okay. That's not real. Right. I'm with like you he doesn't secretly right. run everything. Right. But he's also not the glorified coat rack. He's not the guy who's just kind of, you know, the elf on the shelf, right? The, the one sitting there in the back of the room, just there nodding his head. He has a few lanes of policy that he deals with. And occasionally he can kind of nudge Trump on issues, but he doesn't force him. He doesn't because he knows that he has to in order to survive forward to 2024 and try to win that Trump base to win the Republican nomination. (laughs) He cannot cross Trump ever. Uh And because, right, he could get dumped from the ticket in 2020. That's a a, a distinct possibility. And and it looks like Trump threatens to do that regularly. Not that uh, not publicly, but it seems like that's the case. Well, you know, I reported this um, after after I finished up the book. Uh, unfortunately, I couldn't get it in there, but I reported this with Yahoo News a few weeks ago about Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump right. uh, talking about this, discussing this option. Now, I should say that there are people say this is completely false. There's nothing to it, um, but it appears to be real. And um, it, this is it. It hangs over Pence's head, and you, his some of some of his advisors, former advisors, will talk about how these are these are loyalty tests that Pence has to go through. They're still making him jump through hoops, even after three years of being tied together with Trump. Right, right. Well, you know the the whole story. Mike Pence is just he's a. There's something about him, and I've always felt that way. It's hard to put your finger on, but you even wrote it, Tom Lobianco, in your book. You wrote, um, Mm -hmm. as you began reporting and researching for the book, quote, 
I had the same nagging feeling that I had when I covered him in Indiana. I was missing something about him. I was misunderstanding mm-hmm. him. What I found was a clever politician, more cunning than most gave him credit for, and precisely why he has eluded scrutiny for so long. Indeed, as one longtime acquaintance put it, boring is his camouflage. Was that what you were missing, that he was boring, or was there something more? <laughs> well, when, when you, when you, at the beginning, when you said, you know, condolences for having to cover him, I thought, I thought you meant it was because he's so boring well, as a politician. Well, there's that. <laughs> he's just a bad person, from what I can tell. <laughs> well, he's boring. It, look, he's publicly, he's boring. He's very scripted. He never moves off script. He, you know, he um, doesn't tell very good jokes. He's not terribly... As a, as a politician, right, as a subject to cover, I mean, forget the politics for a second, right. know, but just as a subject, he doesn't draw a lot of attention. I think that's what, you know, a lot of us were worried about what, what would happen if Clinton came into office. I mean, she's not going to be a terribly interesting president to cover. Right. Um, so that's, but one of the, somebody who knew him from the, from the late eighties and kind of kept tabs on him since then, uh, we'll say a contemporary told me that, look, that's his strategy. I mean, he's very good at it. It's boring is, is his way of avoiding detection. So he kind of is able to, you know, move stealthily, so to say. And, uh, and look, I, I think that's how he's gotten so far. He's very good at the inside game. He's good at, if he ever ran for president and, uh, you know, by all accounts, it looks like he they're will. trying to line up a run in 2024. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, it's the inside game. Yeah. But, that's, that's him. But here's the thing. Uh, the, uh, again, it goes back to my problem with these so-called Christians. Again, as an atheist Jew, I'm more Christian than most of them. If you talk about being a good person and, and wanting to help other people and the actual teachings of Jesus Christ, um, he's just a hypocrite. If he really held true to his beliefs, he would have left the ticket when the Access Hollywood tape came out. And apparently, according to reporting, Karen Pence, his wife, who he calls mother, um, was angry about this, right? You, you wrote that on election night, she refused to kiss him, saying, mm-hmm. you got what you wanted, Mike, leave me alone. Um, obviously, his ambition mm-hmm. was greater than his uh, moral compass. It appears that way. I mean, based on the reporting, it, it, it appears that, you know, look, everybody has ambitions of some sort, but right. it appears that he lets the ambition really take control. Certainly the, the higher he climbs. Um, let me tell you about that. People have been talking a lot recently about this, you know, Karen refusing yep. to kiss him. Yeah. Uh, you know, the first time I heard that bit, it was about, uh, I thought she was angry at Trump. She was just pissed off at him. But the more I reported this, the more I came to believe that, She's actually pissed off at Mike, and here's the reason why. They took a gamble by by siding with by joining up with Trump in sure. July 2016. And when they take that initial gamble, the calculation is that they'll be able to run in their, in their own right in 2020, and after Trump invariably will lose. Right, <laughs> right that's the right, thinking right. in the moment. Yep. And he just kind of catapults, and then Pence will catapult to the front of the Republican field. So when Trump wins they lose that it just screws up their entire Ah, game plan. And I uh think the reason Karen, yeah, because remember Karen's more than just, you know, angry school mom, whatever, you know, that caricature of her, she's his chief political advisor. Really? Yeah. Don't underestimate her. And what is her criteria? I know she's a school teacher, right? Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Um, her qualifications, she, sorry, not yeah. her criteria. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, yes, she is a school teacher, um, been a teacher for years. Um, but, but beyond that, understand that, and this is something I didn't fully grasp until I started work on the book, understand that she is his single most important political advisor and oh. advisor on everything else. But in terms of the team, the two of them running for the White House, running for whatever it is, you know, it's just the two of them. That's the inner circle. So that's why she refuses to kiss him on election night, because they took that risk and everything was supposed to go so well. And they would catapult to the front of the pack for, you know, Republican nomination 2020. And it just blows up in their face. And now he's going to have to spend four years with Trump carrying the water for Trump. It's easier to wash off four months of carrying the water for Trump than it is to wash off four years or even eight true. years of That's carrying true. water for Trump. That is true. 
Um, uh, and but it, he goes along with it, and obviously, I, I wonder about people who put um, ambition above principles, and and especially someone who puts out there as their main thing their Christianity, as if that's supposed to be proof of their moral compass. It, it, it's just you know, it's the hypocrisy that I see not only in these r- religious people, but in Republicans, quite frankly. It, it, it goes with the territory. Um, uh, so, uh, how is your relationship with Mike Pence? Is he is he cordial with you? I mean, you've you've covered him fairly. Your book doesn't take a stance one way or the other. I'm obviously the one who's um, uh, you know uh, not 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 generous toward him. I'm the one who's critical of him here. <laughs> it's not you. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, look, he, he didn't want to talk for this book, uh, unfortunately. He, and it, 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 look, it's a policy that they've said they don't talk for any books. Huh. Um, they won't talk for any profiles of him. And this is part of that political survival. So I understand why they're doing it. I think they do a disservice. But the guy who I interviewed in the past is, you know, very cordial in person, very nice. Uh, you know, I will say this, and we've seen, we see it all the time now. When he doesn't like a question, he steamrolls the answer. Well, they all and do that. he steamrolls it with it, right? Yeah, yeah. That, that's typical <laughs> political speak. I mean, that the, the, their politicians are just excellent at that, at, at ignoring <laughs> the question and answering whatever they want to answer instead. Uh, but he is particularly yeah. good at that. They they hear it, and and who was it? I think it was Sarah Palin in a in a debate said, "I'm not going to answer the question you want me to answer. I'll answer my own question." <laughs> And that's what they do. She's the only one who was honest enough to actually come out and say it. Right? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember somebody told me they thought Trump was a good was good at lying. <laughs> and it just it was just like I was stunned by that. I'm like, if you're a good liar, you wouldn't be caught all the time. Um, right. Right. No, it's funny. Um, you know, people listen selectively, <laughs> I got to tell you. So in the YouTube chat, we have two chat rooms going during the show. In YouTube, um, you are too said, oh, man, is Tom a Republican? I was liking him. I should mention that I don't know what you are. You're a journalist. And the journalists yeah. used to be objective. Um, that was part of journalism. You reported the facts. I would think you, journalists are human beings, so they have their own personal opinions and biases. But that was the thing about journalism. They didn't come through. That's sort of a dying art these days, or so it seems. I got to tell you, Tom Lobianco, I don't know what your political leanings are, and that's a good thing. I'm not supposed to know from reading Thank a you. book that's supposed to be an objective look at the man who <laughs> is inexplicably the vice president right now. That's, I, I appreciate the compliment. And yes, that's right. I mean, look, my, my goal in this is to try and present as much information as possible, let the anecdotes sit out there, and then see what see what it means. I mean, to, you know, I'm still somewhat ambivalent myself on, on exactly who he is. I don't entirely know. It's impossible to know somebody completely. But you get a sense of things. And, you know, I hope that if you're liberal, conservative, independent, libertarian, wherever you are on the political spectrum, I, I hope there's enough in there to, to make it worthwhile because you really need to understand who Mike Pence is. I mean, this guy is uh, he's running for president in yep. his own right, more than likely. Yep. Uh, he's got a political future. Need to understand, like you, like you said, with his his radio career, you know, even even before he ever got to Congress, once he gets to Congress much more strategic and and politically cunning than uh, I ever gave him credit for previously. So, uh, yeah, you just really, really need to understand this guy. Um, or, or, or not. I mean, the other part of it is, <laughs> I don't think he stands a chance in hell of winning. If Donald Trump does get impeached and we wind up with President Pence and he runs for re-election, I, he doesn't have the charisma as much as I can't stand Donald Trump. Pence, as you put it, is boring. There is no charisma there. I think he'd have a really hard time getting elected. But anyway, that's up to the people. Tom Lobianco, the book is Piety, Piety and Power. Mike Pence and the Taking of the White House. Thank you so much, Tom. It was great talking with you. Thanks, Nicole. And with that, we reach the end of another episode of the Bradcast. In case you're wondering, hadn't heard why Brad has been out for the last few weeks. His father suffered a horrible stroke a few weeks ago, and actually a few days ago he passed away. Brad wrote a beautiful salute to his father. It's the pinned post at the top at bradblog.com. It's where we post each episode of the Bradcast, but you can go there and read Brad's message and get an understanding of what's going on. 
He and Desi will be back soon. I promise you, they want to get back as much as we want them back. So bear with us for a few more days, and hopefully they'll be back to get on with their lives. In the meantime, uh, you can check out my show as well at NicoleSandler.com. Podcast is always available. We are uh, supported by listener contributions exclusively. We're also heard on the Progressive Voices Network at 5 p.m. Eastern to Pacific, Tuesday through Friday. Until tomorrow, when I'll be back, I'm Nicole Sandler. Thank you for listening. And as Brad always says, good luck, world. <laughs>